Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, our scripture reading comes from James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And it can be found on page 1013 of our Pew Bibles. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we offer this time into your hands. We offer our hearts and our minds into your hands, and we ask that you would reveal truth to us through your word. Let your word not only affect the way we think about the world, but let it transform the way we live. Let the truth of your word continue to shape us into a community that loves you more, loves our families more, loves our neighbors more, and loves our city more. I ask that you would guide Mark in this time and use his words to speak to each of our hearts in the exact way you desire. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, my name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Andrew mentioned, well, it's hard to believe, this week's Thanksgiving, which means next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. So we'll be starting a new series called Emmanuel, uh, catchy title uh, there as we go along with the same theme, and um, talking about what it means that God is with us, which also that means that today is our last Sunday in our year-long series on prayer, and uh, which has been, uh, for me, has been just very helpful. I know I've grown a lot uh, in this series learning about prayer in my own life, and I've heard from a number of you. In fact, we did a survey and of those who responded to the survey, 80% of you, over 80%, said that this time, as we focused on prayer in our worship services, communities, 21 days of prayer, and so on, said it actually has changed the way you pray. And uh, that is what we call a win uh, here. If it's helping you pray and to, to pray more about Christ and his kingdom. And so that's, that's exciting uh, for me. Of course, uh, I think we all would say, We've made some good baby steps, and this is an area where many of us, at least I would say, I need to continue to grow in that area of, of prayer. And so, you know, prayer is not one of those things, hey, we talked about that last year, we're moving on to a different topic now. You know, you can forget prayer for 2020. Uh, we're going to still focus on prayer in some ways, and uh, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, but I think for myself, I still think about prayer, and I think in my conversations with many of you, Prayer is sort of a, a last-ditch effort. You know, we're not really sure what it does, if it really works. We just kind of throw it up there. In fact, I, I was thinking about the phrase, uh, a wing and a prayer. Have you heard that expression? And, and I thought, well, I wonder where that comes from. And so, of course, 
Google, right? And, uh, and so I Googled to find out where this comes from. And the, the original usage that anyone can find comes from an old John Wayne movie called The Flying Tigers, and, uh, which I believe is still available on Amazon Prime. And so uh, 1942, and the situation was that a plane was coming back and had been shot up by the Japanese. And, and uh, John Wayne asked, where is the plane? And he says, oh, she's been shot up and she's coming in on a wing and a prayer. And the definition that uh, this particular Google article gave of an, on a wing and a prayer was this, which I thought was interesting. It means that it is a difficult situation relying on meager resources and luck to get out of it. But I think that's the way we often think about prayer, don't we? We think of prayer as like, man, I've got nothing else. Let's just kind of toss up a prayer up there. It can't hurt. Maybe it'll help. And, uh, and so we pray, and we think of prayers being sort of like the weakest weapon in our arsenal. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a thing we do of, of last resort. In fact, we're not even sure that it works, to be honest. And if it does work, it might work for some people, but I'm really not sure it works for me. It might work for those super saints, you know, the really godly, the, you, you know those people, right? Uh, you know, those people just, they just have, seem to have that connection, that direct line, and, uh, and we don't feel like we have that. Uh, sure, God listens to the super saints, but what about us? Well, as James talks to us about prayer, he explains why ordinary people can pray with boldness and confidence that God will listen and that God will act. So let's look at this passage a little bit more. Number one, first thing we're going to see is prayer depends on God's power. Prayer depends on God's power. Now in verses 13 and 14, James gives a description of times in which we should pray. So he says, if you're going through a very difficult time, a hard time, what should you do? Pray. Why? Because in those difficult times, you need God to get you through it. And then he says, is anyone happy? Are you, are you going through a good time? Like everything's right. What should you do then? Pray a prayer of praise or sing praise to God. Why? Because if things are going well, ultimately that is because God is the one who's responsible. He's responsible for the, uh, the good times and the, and the bad times. Either way, it's up to God. If you're happy, Praise God because he cares for you. If you're in a difficult time, pray to God because you need his care. Either way, it's all up to God. And this prescription uh, for prayer combats the twin enemies of prayer that Paul Miller talks about. And he says the two enemies of prayer are naive optimism and deep cynicism. Naive optimism and deep cynicism. And he defines these this way. He says, in naive optimism... We don't need to pray because everything's under control, right? And it's oftentimes we don't bother to pray because why? I've got this. It's under control. So we don't even think about praying. Uh, in cynicism, we can't pray because everything is out of control and little seems possible. Why bother to pray? And so while naive optimism and deep cynicism appear to be sort of like polar opposites, the, the truth is they, they are two sides of the same coin. Because as many have observed, if you, if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a disappointed idealist underneath. Uh, the reason we become cynical is because we've had optimism that optimism has not been fulfilled. The reason naive optimism disappoints is because we put our faith, our optimism, in the wrong thing. So both cynicism... And, and optimism, naive optimism at least, are the results of misplaced faith. 
And to combat that, both naive optimism and cynicism, James reminds us that the real power of prayer is not in us, but is in God alone. And so he reminds us of this Old Testament character named Elijah. You may not remember much about Elijah. Elijah lived about a thousand years before James, almost. And Elijah was a prophet in the nation of Israel. And at the time Elijah was a prophet, Israel had a very wicked king named Ahab. And Ahab was, uh, was an evil man, and he had an evil wife named Jezebel, right? And so Ahab and Jezebel are ruling the kingdom, and they've taken people away from the worship of God and are engaging in all sorts of evil practices. And so uh, Elijah the prophet comes along, and he prays. And he prays God's judgment on them. And he prays, and because he prays, it does not rain for three and a half years as a result of Elijah's prayer. After three and a half years, great battle happens. Elijah then prays again. And this time he prays that it will rain, and then it rains. And our immediate thought is, wow, Elijah must be some awesome, powerful man. And James says, no, that's not it. Elijah was a prophet, but he was just an ordinary man. He was just a man like us. And, and the reason that God answered Elijah's prayer is not because of Elijah, but because of, because of God. And so what we see then is his prayer was powerful, not because of who he was, but because of who God is. And here's James' point. The same God that Elijah prays to is the same God you're praying to. They're they're exactly the same. We both have access to the same God, the same power. And so, by the way, this is why this whole idea of faith healers and people who claim to have sort of miraculous powers is not biblical. The power does not reside in the person. The power resides in God. It is God who heals. It is God who works. It is God who answers prayer. And so it is not contingent in any way on the person who's praying because the, the, the prayer of one Christian is no less effective than the prayer of another. The power does not come from the one who prays, but from the God who hears. And so, so when you pray... You don't think, well, I'm not Elijah. That's not the point. The question is, is God God? Is your God the same God as the God of Elijah? And James's point is he is, is he is. And so you have access to the same power that Elijah had access to. So prayer depends on God's power, not yours. By the way, that right there should be incredibly liberating. I mean, that should, should just free you up tremendously. Because oftentimes we feel like, I just don't have what it takes And here's the point, you don't. (laughs) You don't have what it takes. God does, that's why we're praying. That's why we pray. So prayer depends on God's power. Secondly, prayer depends on God's grace. Now in verse 14, James says that the one who is sick should call on the elders to pray over him. Now, if every Christian has the same access to God and one Christian's prayer is no more powerful than another Christian's prayer is, then why does he have to call for the elders to pray, right? And that seems to contradict what we just said. Well, think about the role of elders. Who are the elders? What's their job? The elders are the leaders of the church who are responsible for the spiritual oversight and care of the people of the church. And so uh, in this case, we find a person who's in need of acute spiritual care. 
Now, the elders come, they do not come as physicians. Elders are not medically trained. Now, in our case, we have some who are, but you do not have to be medically trained to be an elder. Uh, That is not part of what an elder does. An elder comes uh, because of their spiritual training, their spiritual qualifications. And in this case, James says a person is sick, and the word that he uses for sick is one who is, who is exhausted or a person who is, who is worn out. So this is not just a person who has a, a bad cold. It's not someone who has just a little bug that's going through. This is someone who is extremely sick, uh, possibly even dying. And so elders are coming not to give physical attention, but spiritual care. That's the job of the elders. And so as the elders come and they gather around the sick person and they pray over the sick person, they anoint him with oil. Oil, in this case, is not medicinal. The oil has no uh, medical purpose. We do see oil used as medicine. In one case, when uh, the the Good Samaritan, remember the, the man is beaten up and the Good Samaritan puts oil on his wounds. But most of the time when we see the idea of anointing with oil, In the Old Testament, it is used to sanctify something or to set it apart. It's to to, to bless it, to give it a a, a sacred point. So it's the oil, the anointing with oil is to consecrate something. It symbolizes the outpouring of the Spirit. So as the elders pray, they anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. They're not doing it medically. They're doing it in the name of the Lord to symbolize that this person is being set apart for God's special care and attention. They're setting him apart. And because the elders are there for soul care, that's their primary job, they administer the balm of the gospel. That's the, that's the, the, the medicine that elders carry. It's the gospel. And so how do they do that? So when they gather together, uh, there's a time of confession of sin. Now why? The person's sick. Why are they confessing sin? Well, there could be a couple of reasons, and, and, and either one of them are important. First, in some cases, uh, it could be that the person is sick as a direct result of some unconfessed sin. There are times when God will use illness and suffering in our life as a disciplinary action. Now, discipline is not the same thing as punishment. Punishment is when you get what you deserve for what you've done wrong. As a Christian, God will never punish you. He has punished Jesus. He cannot punish you. That would be unjust. However, God is a loving and gracious father, and he will discipline his children as a corrective measure. And sometimes, God, to get our attention, he just has to knock us flat on our backs, right? I mean, that's just what he has to do. And and so there are times when God will use pain, suffering, even illness in our lives uh, to to get our attention, uh, to call us to repentance, And so, uh, if that's the case, then when we confess before God, uh, our sin before God, we begin to experience his love and his grace. Because when we confess, we experience God's forgiveness. Uh, We we experience what it's like to be loved and forgiven by him. So James says, in this case, it says, if the person has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, in many cases, though, sickness is not the result or the direct result of sin or God's disciplinary action. In fact, most of the time when we get sick and bad things happen, it is not because God is punishing us. Now, we may be tempted to think that he is, but most of the time it is not. In fact, uh, God always has a purpose for any pain that comes into our lives, including illness. He always has a purpose, but it is not necessarily to discipline us for unconfessed sin. A prime example of this is the book of Job. Remember Job? 
Job uh, suffered terribly. Everything goes wrong in his life. What did his friends come and say to him? Job, you must be in sin. Job says, I'm not in sin. Dig deeper, Job. There's something there. Job says, I'm not in sin. Job, look deeper. You're clearly in sin or else God would not be doing this to you. And God, God later rebukes them. He says, you don't know what you're talking about. I was not disciplining Job. I had another purpose of which you know nothing. Of which you know nothing. And, and so, so sickness, uh, may, you know, oftentimes is not a disciplinary action from God. But, but what happens when you get sick? When you get sick and when things are broken, you begin to wonder, is God for me? Is God with me? Why is this happening? Does he love me? In fact, we see this in the Psalms. David, as he's facing difficult trials, he'll say, you know, God, where are you? Have you forsaken me? What, what, is, what is wrong that this is happening to me? And so what happens is when we get sick, when we get ill, particularly if it's a very severe chronic illness or even one that's leading to death, fear will overwhelm our hearts. And we begin to think and begin to wonder, has God abandoned us? And so what the passage says here is then we, we come and we confess sins and we confess our sins one to another because what do we need most? We need the assurance of God's grace. We need to know that God still loves us and that he has not abandoned us. So, so we need to remember that, that sin uh, is never so great that, that uh, it can overshadow God's love for us. And so that's why the sick person calls to the elders. They, they confess their sin to one another. And so that the elders can then say, you know, brother, sister, you're forgiven. God is not angry with you. He is not angry with you. Christ took the punishment for your sin. You do not have to fear his condemnation. And so, uh, you know, so, so we come together and we confess sin. Now, by the way, this command to confess sin to one another is not just for the sick person, it's for all Christians. Now, this is one of the most terrifying commandments I find in the Bible, right? Let's get together and maybe even call some of the spiritual leaders of the church and let me tell you my deepest, darkest, most secret sin, right? Now that sounds like as much fun as having your fingernails pulled off with pliers one by one, right? Now come and just, just share it all. Why would you ever want to do that? Can't I just go to God and confess my sin to God? I don't need to go through other people. Well, you don't need to go through other people in a sense. You don't need anyone else to, to, to tell you that you're forgiven. You have a high priest in Jesus, but you do need other people so that you'll believe it. There, there's something powerful, and I think what James is getting at, about the church being the church. And when the church comes together, we don't come together as a bunch of people who have it all together. We come together as sinners who are saved by grace. And so as we come together, we come and we confess our sins. Uh, and for the case of the sick person, it says that they confess their sins to one another. It's not just one sinner confessing to a group of righteous people. What is it? It's even in the case of the sinner and the elders, it's the case of uh, uh, the sick person and the elders. It's the case, in every case, it's the case of sinners gathering with sinners to confess their sins one to another. We're all on the same level, same playing field. We're being honest about our sin. And, and as we do so, we find that, that we bring our sin into the light. See, there's no healing and hiding. As long as we keep our sin covered up, uh, the, the guilt begins to weigh down on us. Sin thrives in the darkness. When you bring it into the light, 
it loses some of its power. Because when you bring sin out into the light, first you begin to see its ugliness. And by confessing your sin to others, you see what it really is. I don't don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've done something wrong. I have. And I've sinned. And I can minimize it in my own mind. But then when I had to verbalize it to someone else, I go, oh man, that was worse than I thought. All of a sudden you begin to see it And when you begin to see sin in all of its ugliness, which you do in community, what you do when you share it with community, you begin to you begin to see it. It begins to to to, you begin to to see how ugly and awful it is. But then what happens is that shame of that sin will just begin to crush you. And if you hide your sin, it crushes you even more. But then when you confess it to someone else, and then that person can say to you, "Brother, sister, Christ died for you." There is now no condemnation anymore for that sin. Christ has taken that condemnation. Now, you can tell yourself that, but as long as you're the only one telling you that, you're gonna think, I'm just deluding myself. God means that about other sins, nothing this bad. He doesn't mean it about someone who's this sick, but when you hear someone else give you those words of assurance, it's where the the church of Jesus Christ is called to be a kingdom of priests. That's part of who we are, the Bible says. And when we give those priestly words, you are forgiven. You are are no longer condemned. Your shame and your guilt are taken away. It's powerful. And so James says that we are to confess our sins one to another. And so then that leads to the whole thing about the power of prayer. When we confess our sins to one to another and we're assured that we're forgiven, then we're also assured that our power is effective. Now, I said earlier that the prayer of one Christian is no greater than the prayer of another Christian, but in verse 16, what does it say? He has a qualification about prayer. The prayers of the whom are powerful. The prayers of the whom? The righteous. That used to trip me up so badly. And here's why it tripped me up. I mean, well, it's obvious why this tripped me up, right? I think, well, I'm not. And then I would get into this mindset, like if I've been really, really good, then God will answer my prayer. But if I haven't been really, really good, then God won't answer my prayer. And, and, and so I begin to, so what am I looking at at that point? I'm looking at my righteousness. At what point in my life have I ever been righteous enough to deserve God to answer my prayer? Never, never. The only way I'm ever righteous enough for God to hear and answer my prayer is if I am righteous in the righteousness of Christ. And when we confess our sin and when we receive that gospel message that you are forgiven, that you are loved, that you are righteous, then we can pray with boldness. We can pray with courage. And we can come before God and say, Lord, I'm coming to you and I'm bringing you these needs not because I have a righteousness on my own that have deserved this. I'm coming to you because I'm righteous in your son, Jesus. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers, sisters, I'm going to tell you something, and you're not going to believe it. You're righteous. You are righteous. You are righteous. If you're in Christ, you are righteous. I'm not making this stuff up. God just said it in his word. And if God says it in his word, we take that by faith, and we believe it. And if I am righteous, and you are righteous, 
and the prayers of the righteous are powerful in their working, then that means our prayers are powerful in their working. You don't need to hold back. You don't need to come in shame. You don't need to wonder, will God listen to me? Am I good enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I prayed enough? That's not the point. The point is, are you in Christ? That's the point. And if you're in Christ, you are righteous. Believe it. That's the gospel. And so we pray, and our prayer depends on the, the grace of God. And finally, we see that our prayer depends on God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Look again at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, sometimes we'll pray, and, and God doesn't do what we asked. Anybody ever had that experience? <laughs> right? You know? And so when we look at this, and it says, well, the prayer of faith. Maybe the problem is I just hadn't had, had enough faith. Faith. And so, in fact, people say, well, the reason you didn't, you know, God didn't heal or God didn't work in this situation is you had doubts. Now, if you want to pray and you want God to answer your prayer, you've got to have absolutely no doubts. You know, I've never had no doubts about anything in my life. You know, I'm not even sure I'm here, right? You know, the matrix, whatever. It's just, I mean, we, we always have doubts. And you can, and so then what happens is when someone says that to you, it's like, don't doubt, don't doubt, don't doubt. What if I'm doubting? Oh, I don't know if I'm doubting or not. And you will go crazy thinking like this. Uh, you really will. And, and, but that can't be what, uh, what James is saying. Because there are clear examples of people who had remarkable faith where God did not answer their prayer. Like the Apostle Paul, I, I'd lift him up there, someone who had pretty strong faith, Right? And yet in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, he pleads with God three times to remove the thorn in the flesh, whatever that might be. He prays three times and says, God, please remove this. And God says, no. Then he says, no. And then he says, no. Every single time. Now, could it be that Paul just didn't have enough faith? Maybe he just, he just needed to, I believe, I believe, I believe. No. God said, no, because he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Or how about Jesus? Do you think uh, Jesus maybe had a little faith issues? Do you know Jesus had a prayer that went unanswered? Jesus prayed. He said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup, this cup of uh, the, the cross pass from me. And God says, no, you're going to drink the cup. You're going to drink the cup. You think Jesus just didn't have enough faith? He just, you know, he just didn't believe enough? Obviously not. That'd be heresy, right? Jesus, Jesus had faith. So what does it mean? That, uh, you know, in, fact, in fact, let me give you another example. It goes the other way. In Mark chapter 9, we have a man who doesn't believe. He comes to Jesus, and he has a, a son who is demon-possessed, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion on, uh, on us. And Jesus says, if? Did you just say, if? Do you know who I am? If? And, uh, and, and, uh, and, and so he said, all things are possible to the one who believes. And immediately, the father uh, cries out, I guess, I believe. Um, help me in my unbelief. And Jesus heals. Here's a man who admitted his doubts. And yet Jesus healed. 
So it's not that we have zero doubts. I think to understand this, what James means by faith and doubt, we have to go back to chapter one of James. And in James chapter one, if you have your Bible, you'll want to turn there. It's in verses six through eight. James says this about prayer. He says that we are to pray in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what does James mean by doubting? He says the one who doubts is a double-minded man. That is, he's a man of two minds. Uh, and to put it another way, he's got his feet firmly planted in two different worlds. And he's, he's like a, a person who's on the waves uh, of the sea being tossed about. Have you ever tried to stand on a boat? particularly if they're the waves that are going like this. Or even harder, have you ever tried to stand between two boats? Like you're going from one boat to another and you have your foot, one foot on one boat and the other foot on another boat? There's something that inevitably happens after you do that. It's called swimming. Um, <laughs> you know, you cannot stay that way. It is unstable. And so what James is talking about with the double-minded man is a man who, who has one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God, and he's seeking to trust in both. And he says, a person like that, if you're putting your faith in the world and in God, you're unstable, you're not gonna make it. And so, so that's what he means by doubting. It's an untenable position. To have faith, then, means that you put your full trust in God. To put your full trust in God. And so trusting, then, in God when you trust God, you're not trusting God to do whatever you instruct him to do. That would be a misplaced faith. Our faith is in God, not in God following our instructions. Faith is confidence in God. Faith is trust in his love, his care, and his provision. So when we pray and we're pouring out our hearts to God and our requests to God, we pray with the confidence that God will respond in the most loving, gracious, merciful way possible. We assume that if God loves us, you know, often how we think, we assume that if God loves us, he's going to do whatever we ask. In fact, I, I've experienced this in my life. I've and many times talked to people said, who said they lost their faith in God. And you'll say, why? Well, one time I prayed for God to do this, and he didn't do it. And therefore, I don't trust him. He didn't come through when I needed him. And so that's a bit of a, a misplaced faith. I certainly understand it. But faith ultimately is in trusting God. Here's the, the simple picture of this. You have a situation. You look at the situation and say, here's what I think needs to happen for this to work out to the best. God looks at that situation and says, I actually think this is what needs to happen for that to work out best. Who do you trust more? Again, we've done this before. Put your hands together. That's your brain. That's how big it is. It fits right in here, in that little skull of yours. Uh, you, you know, and the, as the, uh, they would say in the, the old Latin phrase was, the, the finite cannot contain the infinite. You don't know everything. How big is God's brain, right? God knows everything. He's infinite. Is it possible? I mean, just think for a moment. Is it possible that in a situation where you're so sure this is the best thing to happen, that God might actually have a better plan? I mean, is that possible? You know, remotely possible. It is, right? God is smarter than you. He's wiser than you. 
and he loves you more than you can imagine. And if those things are true, when you pray, you do not always want God to do whatever you tell him to do. You do not want that. In fact, if God always did whatever you told him to do, he would be completely untrustworthy. You would not worship a God like that. You want a God who's going to do what he knows is best and what fits his wisdom and that faith and that trust that he's always going to do what is best for you. You know, when I was a kid, I, uh, several of my friends in the neighborhood had a mini bike. Now, I don't even know if they make mini bikes like this anymore. They're basically fat-wheeled bicycles with a lawnmower engine strapped on them, you know. And they went really fast. Uh, they're very fast. And so uh, my friends had one, and I wanted one, and I would beg my dad for a mini bike. And my dad always just said, no. My, my, you did not argue with my dad. You'd ask my dad something, he'd say no. You could keep talking all you wanted. He was not going to respond. There was no argument with my dad. And so one of my other friends came up with a bright idea. He says, you know, Christmas is coming up. Your parents have to give you something. And so if you only ask for one thing and you say there's nothing else you want, then they have to get you that one thing. So just ask for a mini bike and tell your dad you don't want anything else. And I tried that. My dad said, oh, well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> That was his full response. And, um, uh, you know, my dad, I I looked at that and I thought he was mean and cruel because he wasn't giving me what other people had. The point is, though, I'm a klutz. Like, I am incredibly uncoordinated. On just a regular bicycle with no motor, I broke my arm. Another time, I knocked out my front teeth. Can you imagine what would have happened to me as a child with a motor on that bike? I would be dead today, right? My father knew that. He goes, son, he he was too gracious to say, son, you're a klutz. He never said that. But it is the truth. And and my father's actions were were actions out of love. And, And so the same thing we see with God. Do we really want God to do for you what you think is best rather than what he knows is best? So when we pray, we pray like Jesus when he was on earth. We're placing our trust in God to do what he knows is best, not what he thinks is best. That is the prayer of faith. We're going to God before God saying, God, here are my concerns, but ultimately, and here's what I want, and here's what I think is best, and I'm pouring out my heart to you, but I trust you. I don't trust me, I trust you. Understanding this, will change how you live. It'll strip you of your naive optimism to think that you've got life under control, that you can do this thing without prayer. You can't. You cannot do life on your own. It'll take away your cynicism that leaves you feeling powerless and jaded because it'll remind you you have a father who hears your prayers. Now think about this in parenting. Parents, uh, some of you have read all the books there are on parents. You've done your research uh, and you think you've got this whole thing parenting thing figured out till your child turns one, uh, you know, uh, then you'll find out you don't, right? But some of you, you know, even after they, they're growing up, you've, you've done it, you've got it, your children are, I mean, your children are like perfect, and you think you've got this thing uh, figured out. I'm here to tell you, you don't have it figured out. You don't have it figured out. You need to pray. You need to pray. The only hope for your children are your prayers, Others of you are looking at your children and go, man, not only do I not have it figured out, I've made such a mess of things, there's absolutely no hope for them. Some of you are heartbroken over your, your children as they are now in your home, and some of you have grown up, and you're, th- you're weighed down by the guilt and the shame. Listen, parenting's too big a job for you, but it's not too big a God, job for God. 
God can work in your children's lives in ways you never could. And do not give up hope and give over to despair thinking that the game is over. It is not over. God, who answered Elijah's prayers, answers the prayers of the parents in this room too. He is listening to you even now. Uh, Think about your work. Some of you think you can go to your work. You're thinking you've, you've got it all figured out. Some of you think there is no hope. After all, what, is, what does God have to do with engineering or, or real estate or banking or, or the military? Well, everything actually, right? And, and some of you think you can do it without God because you studied and you worked hard and you think you, you know what you're doing. No, you need God in your work. And some of you are at your work and you're thinking, I can't do this. I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. You need God in your work. God is there. The God who answered Elijah's prayer is the God who listens to yours. And we come before him as his children. Instead of living on our own, like we are in control, we come and we pour out our heart to God, resting assured that the Jesus who died for you is the same Jesus who promised he would never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have that we are not alone in this world. Lord, we just ask you first to forgive us for thinking that we are. Some of us are so naive that we think that uh, we are going through life and it's working out because we're so smart or it's all under our control. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for that arrogance and naivete. And Lord, for others, we are cynical. We've put our hope in things and things have not worked out as we hope and so we have... Uh, drawn the false conclusion that you have abandoned us, that prayer doesn't work, that you're not uh, engaged. Lord, forgive us for slighting you like that, for failing to trust in you. Instead, oh Lord, we pray that we'd be a people of prayer because we are people of faith, that our hope is in you and in you alone because Christ has died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.